This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of slap lesion from the shoulder and elbow section on orthobullets.com. So let's start this episode with a quick summary. A slap lesion, or superior labrum from anterior to posterior tear, generally occurs as a result of overuse injury to the shoulder in overhead athletes or traumatic falls in older patients, and can result in deep shoulder pain and biceps tendonitis. Diagnosis generally requires MRI studies to assess the superior labrum and the integrity of the biceps tendon. Treatment may be non-operative or operative, depending on patient age, activity levels, severity of symptoms, and associated instability. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, in terms of incidence, slap lesions are uncommon injuries and account for less than 5% of all shoulder injuries. As far as the demographics, the dominant shoulder of overhead and throwing athletes are typically involved. Risk factors include glenohumeral internal rotation deficit, or GERD. Moving on to the etiology, the mechanism of injury of a slap lesion is repetitive overhead activity, often seen in throwing athletes, a fall on an outstretched arm with a tensed biceps, and or traction on the arm. The pathoanatomy in throwers may be due to tightness of the posterior IGHL, which shifts the glenohumeral contact point superiorly and increases the shear force on the superior labrum. Slap lesions increase the strain on the anterior band of the IGHL and thus compromises stability of the shoulder. Associated conditions include internal impingement, GERD, rotator cuff tears, which are usually articular-sided, instability, which may be subtle, and scapular dyskinesis. Moving on to anatomy, be sure to listen to the podcast episode about glenohumeral joint anatomy, stabilizer, and biomechanics for a full review about the anatomy of the glenohumeral joint. But in this episode, we'll talk about variant anatomic anatomy, the anatomy of the biceps, as well as the glenoid labrum. So in terms of variant anatomic anatomy, Variable anatomic relationships are extremely common in the glenohumeral joint, and recognition of these are critical but often challenging. As far as the anatomy of the biceps, the long head of the biceps tendon most commonly has 50% fibers attaching to the labrum and 50% to the supraglenoid tubercle. The tubercle is located over 6 mm medial to the glenoid surface. In terms of biceps tendon attachment on the glenoid, or the Tuohedi classification, type 1 is completely posterior, Type 2 is predominantly posterior, and remember type 1 and type 2 together comprise greater than 70%. Type 3 is anterior plus posterior and makes up 25%, and type 4 is anterior and makes up 5%. Know that the most common pattern of biceps tendon attachment to the superior labrum is posterior to the 12 o'clock position. In terms of blood supply to the biceps, the porous tendon blood supply is while traversing through the joint. The function of the biceps is to contribute to torsional and horizontal stability during the late cocking phase of throwing. Moving on to the glenoid labrum, the function is a chalk block to subluxation. In terms of composition, the glenoid labrum is composed of fibrocartilaginous tissue. The blood supply to the glenoid labrum is from the suprascapular, circumflex scapular, and posterior humeral circumflex arteries. The labrum receives blood from the capsule and periosteal vessels and not from underlying bone the anterior superior labrum has the porous blood supply. The stability of the glenoid labrum comes from the superior labrum, which attaches further medial from the glenoid rim than the rest of the labrum. Know that the superior labrum anchors the biceps tendon and is the weak link that leads to a slap lesion. Some anatomic variants to consider include sublabral recess slash foramen, which can be confused with a tear on MRI, a sublabral recess slash foramen with a thickened MGHL, 
a meniscoid appearance, which makes up 1% of glenoid labrums, a Buford complex, which is a cord-like MGHL with an associated bare area of the anterosuperior labrum, and know that repair of a Buford complex to the glenoid will result in significant loss of external rotation. Finally, another anatomic variant of the glenoid labrum is superior attachment of the MGHL on the glenoid. Now, let's talk about classification of slap lesions, and the slap classification is divided into 10 types. Type 1 is characterized by labral and biceps fraying with the anchor intact and makes up 11% of cases. Type 2 is characterized by labral fraying with a detached biceps tendon anchor, making up 41% of cases. Type 3 is a bucket handle tear with an intact biceps tendon anchor, making up 33% of cases, and remember that the biceps separates from a bucket handle tear. Type 4 is characterized as a bucket handle tear with a detached biceps tendon anchor, making up 15% of cases, and remember in type 4 lesions, the biceps remains attached to the bucket handle tear. Type 5 is characterized as a type 2 lesion, which again is labral fraying with a detached biceps tendon anchor, plus antero-inferior labral extension, otherwise known as a Bankart lesion. Type 6 is a type 2 plus an unstable flap. Type 7 is a type 2 plus an MGHL injury. Type 8 is a type 2 plus posterior extension. Type 9 is circumferential. And type 10 is a type 2 plus posterior-inferior extension, otherwise known as a reverse Bankart lesion. The Snyder classification is the original classification, which includes types 1 through 4. The Maffei subclassification includes the original 1 through 4 and added types 5 through 7. Remember there is significant inter- and intra-observer variability when designating classification for slap tears. Moving on to the presentation of slap lesions, patients would typically report a history of feeling a pop sensation in the shoulder during an overhead activity or traumatic event. As far as symptoms, the location is often a vague, deep shoulder pain. And in terms of timing, there is often a lag between the time of injury and the onset of symptoms. Patients will have mechanical symptoms of popping and clicking, as well as weakness, easy fatigue, and decreased athletic performance. On physical exam, in terms of inspection, be sure to evaluate the scapular position and muscle atrophy, as well as bicipital groove tenderness. As far as motion assessment, a pop may be reproduced during overhead range of motion. Particular attention should be paid to internal rotation and total rotational arc of motion. Finally, remember to always compare to the contralateral side. On neurovascular exam, you may find atrophy of the supra and or infraspinatus due to suprascapular neuropathy. In terms of provocative tests, there is no one specific test for slap lesions. However, there are biceps provocation tests and slap lesion tests. Biceps provocation tests include things like the Speeds test, Jurgensen's test, and a Kim biceps load test. Slap lesion tests include things like an active compression test, otherwise known as an O'Brien's test, a crank test where the arm is placed in full abduction and the humerus is loaded and rotated, a dynamic labral shear test, and a Kibler anterior slide test. Know that in terms of provocative tests, apprehension is positive in 85% of patients with a slap lesion. Moving on to imaging, findings on radiographs are often normal. An MRI plus or minus an orthogram is indicated when there is a high suspicion for a labral tear. Findings may include T2 signal intensity between the superior labrum, lateral to the glenoid rim, and posterior to the biceps. Sensitivity is approximately 50% and specificity is approximately 90%, which increases with the orthogram. You may see an associated paralabral ganglion cyst, which is highly specific for a labral tear, and this is usually in the spinal glenoid notch. 
Treatment of a slap lesion can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management can include rest from sports followed by physical therapy and NSAIDs. This is indicated as the first line of treatment. Be sure to address GERD if present. And rehab should be focused on scapular dyskinesia and rotator cuff strengthening for all patients. Operative options include arthroscopic debridement, arthroscopic debridement with repair of the labrum slash biceps versus debridement with biceps tenotomy slash tenodesis, and arthroscopic debridement with repair or debridement of the labrum with biceps tenotomy slash tenodesis. An arthroscopic debridement is indicated in types 1, 3, and 4 tears involving less than one-third of the biceps tendon, causing severe symptoms that have failed non-operative management. Arthroscopic debridement with repair of the labrum slash biceps versus debridement with biceps tenotomy slash tenodesis is highly controversial. However, can be indicated for type 2 tears that are traditionally repaired in overhead athletes. Know that return to play rates after slap repairs are significantly lower for pitchers compared to non-pitchers. And the general consensus bodes for tenotomy slash tenodesis among those over 40 years of age. Finally, in terms of arthroscopic debridement with repair or debridement of the labrum with biceps tenotomy slash tenodesis, this is indicated for type 4 tears with greater than one-third of the biceps tendon involved, causing severe symptoms that have failed non-operative management. Now, let's go over the surgical technique for an arthroscopic debridement versus stabilization of the labrum and biceps tendon versus tenotomy slash tenodesis in a bit more detail. The approach is the standard arthroscopic approach to the shoulder. In terms of soft tissues, Look for erythema and tearing under the labrum to differentiate from a normal recess. A quote-unquote peelback test shows peelback of the labrum with 90 degrees of external rotation and abduction. Debride loose flaps of labrum slash biceps and decompress any cysts. In the setting of a slap repair, utilize accessory or percutaneous portals as necessary for anchor placement near the glenoid rim. Sutures are placed depending on tear anatomy. It's traditionally thought that sutures placed anterior to the biceps anchor risks increased stiffness postoperatively. In terms of biceps tenotomy slash tenodesis, remember to tenotomize the biceps near the attachment to the labrum with arthroscopic scissors or a shaver device. A tenodesis may be done all arthroscopically or through a mini open incision. A variety of tenodesis devices are used for biceps fixation into the proximal humerus. In terms of rehabilitation, Week 1 through 4 is characterized by passive and active assisted flexion in the scapular plane, and remember to avoid extremes of abduction and external rotation, as well as resisted biceps exercises. In weeks 4 through 6, progress to active range of motion and isometrics. Weeks 6 through 12 are characterized by functional exercise and light strengthening. And after week 12, you will advance strength and range of motion and sport-specific exercises, and the typical return to sport is around 6 months. Now let's talk about some post-op complications. We'll go over stiffness, suprascapular nerve injury, as well as failed slap repair and persistent symptoms. As far as incidence of stiffness, this is the most common complication following slap repair, making up around 78% of all patients. As far as risk factors, incidental slap lesions are repaired in older patients, defined as greater than 45 years old, having arthroscopic rotator cuff repair. Treatment involves early passive and active assisted range of motion, or pendulum exercises, beginning one week following repair. If stiffness does not resolve with physical therapy, capsular release is indicated. Moving on to suprascapular nerve injury, overdrilling the glenoid can cause injury to the suprascapular nerve. Finally, in terms of failed slap repair and persistent symptoms, there are many causes including articular cartilage injuries, hardware failure, and anchor pullout. 
Failures are associated with patients aged greater than 36 years old, and know that biceps tenodesis is a better option in this age group. Finally, in terms of prognosis, return to play is variable, and there are unpredictable rates of return among elite-level throwers. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A 55-year-old male patient presents with right shoulder pain that is worse with overhead activity. The patient works as a computer programmer and is a recreational swimmer and has noted worsening pain with his breaststroke. A coronal T2 MRI arthrogram of the affected shoulder shows contrast in vagination into the superior labrum. The patient decides to undergo an arthroscopic repair. What factor is associated with repair failure? And the choices are 1. Recreational swimmer 2. Age greater than 36 years 3. Male gender 4. Sedentary career and 5. Snyder type 2 lesion. The correct answer to this question is 2. Age greater than 36 years. So the patient is presenting with a Snyder type 2 superior labral from anterior to posterior or slapped hair. Labral repair failures have been associated with patients ages greater than 36 years. To quickly review, slap tears involve the superior labrum at the location of the long head of the biceps insertion and commonly occur in overhead athletes. Snyder type 2 tears are those with an unstable biceps anchor and frayed labrum. If a course of non-operative treatment fails, these are amenable to labral reattachment to the glenoid. However, there is a high failure rate in those patients older than 36 years of age, which is often attributed to the biceps. Better results are seen with biceps tenodesis in this age group, done either arthroscopically or open. Proventure et al. performed a prospective study of military patients with Snyder type 2 slap lesions undergoing arthroscopic repair. The authors found there to be a 36.8% failure rate and a 28% revision rate with age greater than 36 years being the only associated factor. They concluded that slap repair does provide improvement in shoulder scores, but outcomes are not as favorable in patients greater than 36 years. Werner et al. performed a retrospective cohort study of patients undergoing either arthroscopic suprapectoral and open subpectoral biceps tenodesis for superior labrum and biceps lesions. There were no significant differences between the two techniques with respect to patient-reported outcomes, range of motion, and strength. The authors concluded that both open and arthroscopic tenodesis provide excellent clinical and functional outcomes. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, recreational activity, gender, and sedentary occupation have not been associated with slap repair failure. In answer 5, Snyder type 2 tears are the most amenable to repair of the labrum with types 1 and 3 treated with debridement and type 4 with tenodesis. Moving on to the next question. A 25-year-old male baseball player presents three months postoperatively after undergoing repair of a slap tear. He is complaining of shoulder pain and weakness. As the operative surgeon, you recall errantly passing instrumentation medial to the glenoid. From which portion of the brachial plexus does the injured nerve arise? And the choices are 1. Superior trunk, 2. Middle trunk, 3. Roots of C5 to C7, 4. Posterior cord, and 5. Medial cord. The correct answer to this question is 1. Superior trunk. So the suprascapular nerve arises from the superior trunk of the brachial plexus and may be injured during superior labrum anterior to posterior or slap tear repair if instrumentation is passed medial to the glenoid. 
Neuropathy of the suprascapular nerve is frequently caused by space-occupying lesions. The nerve may also be injured by plating of the glenoid or muscle mobilization during cuff repair. Injuries have also been reported with slap repairs, especially if anchors or instrumentation are passed medial to the glenoid. Cummins et al. performed an anatomic study on the spinal glenoid ligament. They dissected 112 shoulders and found no distinct ligament structure in 20% of shoulders. Overall, 80% of shoulders had a fibrous band of tissue that together with the spine of the scapula formed a narrow fibroosseous tunnel through which the suprascapular nerve traveled. Overall, 80% of shoulders had a fibrous band of tissue that together with the spine of the scapula formed a narrow fibroosseous tunnel through which the suprascapular nerve traveled. They found the ligaments to be composed of collagen on histologic analysis. They conclude that the ligament may limit mobilization and advancement of the infraspinatus tendon during repair of a massive cuff tear and the spinal glenoid ligament represents a potential site for nerve entrapment. Kim et al. present a case of a 41-year-old woman who underwent arthroscopic repair of a slap lesion with suture anchors. The patient continued to have pain postoperative and MRI revealed that the suture anchor was beyond the cortical bone of the glenoid rim and abutted the suprascapular nerve. Direct compression of the nerve was visualized with repeat arthroscopy and the suture anchor was removed. The patient became asymptomatic three months later. The authors recommended careful placement of suture anchors during repair of slap lesions to avoid iatrogenic injury to the suprascapular nerve. Scully et al. performed a review on iatrogenic nerve injuries in shoulder surgery. They report that due to the intimate relationship of the suprascapular nerve to the glenoid rim as it traverses the body of the scapula, the nerve is at risk during procedures that involve drilling and passing sutures and or placing screws around the glenoid face and rim. They report that repair of slap tears can result in injury as a result of, quote, drill-out, in which the drill perforates the medial glenoid and improper anchor placement. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 2, there are no branches arising from the medial trunk. Answer 3, the long thoracic nerve arises from the nerve roots of C5 to C7. And answer 4, posterior cord and answer 5, medial cord are incorrect, as many nerves arise from the posterior and medial cords of the brachial plexus, however none of them would be injured by passing instrumentation medial to the glenoid. And moving on to the final question. A 26-year-old outfielder undergoes arthroscopic repair of a right shoulder type 2 slap tear with two labral anchors in the 11 and 1 o'clock positions. Postoperative rehabilitation for this slap repair should include, and the choices are 1, immediate full active range of motion that simulates sport-specific activities, 2, full-time sling wear with no active nor passive motion for at least 6 weeks until labral tissues heal, 3, rotator cuff strengthening by postoperative week 2 to prevent disuse atrophy and shoulder instability, 4, limited passive motion for 4 weeks, then progressive active motion until 8 weeks, followed by sport-specific strengthening until at least 12 to 16 weeks postoperatively, and 5, eccentric open-chain biceps contraction exercises beginning at postoperative week 2 to retrain the biceps muscle and stimulate slap healing at the biceps anchor on the glenoid. The correct answer to this question is for limited passive motion for four weeks, then progressive active motion until eight weeks, followed by sport-specific strengthening until at least 12 to 16 weeks postoperatively. The most common type 2 slap repair rehabilitation protocols focus on limited passive range of motion followed by regaining active motion. Then finally, strengthening and sport-specific activities. Specific protocols vary by surgeon, concomitant injuries, and intraoperative findings. The initial passive motion is often limited from 0 to 90 degrees of forward elevation during the first four weeks. 
This helps prevent stiffness, but also avoids stressing the repair site at the extremes of motion. Active motion is then initiated in a limited arc of motion to re-strengthen the shoulder. Finally, sports-specific activities are progressively trained from 8 to 16 weeks. Ellen Becker et al. reviews shoulder rehab and describes therapy focused on early passive motion with progressive active motion for rotator cuff repairs. They describe successful return to near full range of motion and strength by 12 weeks postoperatively. The Mansky et al. article reviews the therapy for all slap injuries treated both operatively and non-operatively. That's all for this review about slap lesions. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.